Now, um, before you sit down, in fact, go ahead and take your Bibles out, and you can open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 this morning. But um, for the young people, something for you to be thinking about, and maybe come up and tell me after service, that song that we just sang, of course, that's a Christmas song, um, not one of the real popular ones, but a song talking about um, the, the future coming of the Messiah. And I picked that song for a reason uh, that comes out of the sermon. And so after service this morning, if you can come and tell me what this had to do with the sermon, uh, that will be great. And I will be impressed by your reasoning powers. (laughs) Romans chapter 15 is where we're at this morning. We'll read verses 7 through 13, and that will also be our text for this morning. Let's... Uh, Hear God as he speaks to us through his inspired, breathed out word. Romans 15, beginning in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for that one who is Emmanuel, God with us, the one who was in the beginning with God and was God and is God and will always be God. And we thank you for... Uh, This time that we have this morning to open up your word and to hear what you have to teach us. And we pray that your spirit would work in us, that we might understand. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it may not seem it, since we're still in the, the middle of chapter 15 of Romans, but this morning... We are really going to be coming to the conclusion of the main body of Paul's letter to the Romans. Verse 14, uh, which we'll look at next week of this chapter, through the end of the letter is taken up with personal matters that Paul speaks about, greetings to a, a whole list of specific individuals, some notes on Paul's travel plans, uh, and so on. Now, that doesn't mean that there's Not anything left to learn after we get through with this morning. In fact, far from it. There's still much to to learn from from this. Um, In fact, since all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and training in righteousness, because that is true, we know that the Holy Spirit moved the Apostle Paul to include that last section, even the list of names, uh, for our good. For our instruction. But this morning we really come to the conclusion of the main body of the letter. 
And although we noted last week, when we looked at verse 7 last week, uh, we noted that we came to the conclusion of Paul's discussion of unity in the church and the relationship between the strong in faith and the weak in faith, uh, this last verse, verse 7, also serves as a transition into the, the, the verses that we're going to be considering this morning. And we'll see that these verses are not totally disconnected from that discussion that we have just finished going through about how we relate to one another in the church. This really uh, is continuing that thought. Now back about a year and a half ago, we began our journey through the book of Romans. And when we did that, we likened the book of Romans to that tallest of the, the majestic California redwood trees, the Hyperion. And so we called Romans the Hyperion of the New Testament. And since we're going to be coming to the conclusion of the main body of the letter as a whole today, it is as if we've completed, or nearly completed, our climb to the top of this majestic tree of the book of Romans. So while we're up here, let's take a moment this morning to begin and look back down and see what we've seen as we've climbed. We've taken... um, a year and a half so far to get through this, and so it may be, uh, if you'll pardon the expression, that we may have missed some of the forest for the trees. So let's take a look back down this tree. Uh, In case you're afraid of heights, you can just sit there and listen as I describe it to you. Paul began this letter to the church of Rome that seat of the Roman Empire, he began it by right away at the very beginning introducing himself in relation to his purpose, that he was as an apostle, that he was set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel which he said was all about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born as a a son of David according to the flesh, but born the Son of God. In verses 16 and 17 of that first chapter, Paul gave us the thesis for the letter to Romans, the book of Romans. The gospel, he said, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, he said, and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That is the... That's the thesis of of Romans, the gospel, the power of God for salvation. And that was his purpose, is to lay that out for us. But before he set out to describe the gospel itself and that righteousness that it gives us and, and reveals to us, he first showed us how undeniable man's need is for such a righteousness, a righteousness that comes from somewhere other than himself, because man... In man, there is no righteousness. Man is sinful. Man is wicked. And God's wrath, Paul said, is constantly being revealed from heaven against that wickedness, that sinfulness, as time marches along toward that final day when God will judge the world in a final, ultimate way. And Paul concluded that that first section by stating very categorically that there is no one No son of Adam that is right before God on his own. And that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, are all condemned for their sin. 
In the middle of chapter 3, then Paul turned the corner and began to talk about that gospel that he was so anxious to speak to the Romans about. He introduced us to a righteousness, the righteousness that, that we need, the righteousness that the gospel reveals. It's a righteousness, Paul said, that comes not from us doing anything, but comes from Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, his righteousness. It is the righteousness that God demands and the righteousness that God, by grace, provides. In these verses, Paul introduced us to the topic of justification, the sovereign declaration by the sovereign God that anyone who trusts Christ, every particular person who trusts in Christ, is righteous in his sight because Not only is that one's sin totally forgiven through Christ, but Christ's righteousness is granted to him. And it becomes his righteousness to make that personal, that you, Christian, you who trust in Christ, you are righteous in his sight because not only has your sin been forgiven, but Christ's righteousness has been credited to you as yours. It comes as a free gift. Nothing that you can do to earn it, but it is a free gift of God's grace and is received. Paul was most adamant that we understand it comes and is received not through works, but through simply believing, through faith in Christ alone. God's way is grace. His way of giving salvation is grace. And the man is blessed, Paul said, who recognizes that. And who believes him who justifies the ungodly through faith in Christ. And that's us. Then beginning in chapter 5, Paul began to lay out for us the benefits of this great justification that we receive through faith. That we have peace with God. That we have hope in God. That we have the ability to even rejoice in our sufferings because of the good that it is intended to do and that it does in fact do for us. That we have union with Christ, that we are reckoned in Him through faith. In chapter 6, Paul brought us to hear about the way of godliness. Teachings on how the Christian life, the justified life, brings about a new relationship to sin and to the law. That it is inconceivable that a Christian would, would continue to live a life given over to sin. Because we have died to sin. Because we are no longer slaves to sin. And we are no longer under the law and the condemnation that that brings. Paul goes on to explain in chapter 8 that we are not just, or that as we are not under the law, that we are in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who now dwells in us. And as we set our mind on the things of the Spirit, He continually works in us to free us from the things of the flesh. Just as we are dead to sin, we are alive to God through His Spirit, that Spirit that dwells in us, who is also the token, Paul told us, of our adoption, proving that we are God's children and that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. And this, he said, is our hope, our confident hope, a topic that will come up again this morning. The Holy Spirit, we learned, is is active in every aspect of our lives, even 
interceding in prayer for us when we don't know what to pray about. And he prays for our good, and therefore we can be certain that we will have the good. We can be certain that, that at everything, Paul says, works for our good because God makes everything to work for our good. He has set each of us, brothers and sisters, on a path. A path that stretches from his choosing us in eternity past to predestinating us to be conformed to the image of his son. It includes our justification. It even includes our future glorification in such a way that Paul speaks of that glorification as if it had already happened. Assuring us of our place in Christ and in his kingdom. Because we are in Christ, because we are justified by the grace of God, Paul says, we can be certain, absolutely certain, that nothing, nothing, nothing is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That is our place as Christians. That is our place as justified, forgiven, spirit-indwelt believers of God. In the middle portion of the book... Paul took some time to turn to another topic that was of great importance to him, the place of of Israel in God's ongoing work. And we heard much as Paul spoke about God's faithfulness, of his election and his mercy, of his absolute sovereignty in all things as he works out his plan for his church. Jew and Gentile. In chapter 12, then, Paul turned to the topic of how God's people, Jew and Gentile, must respond to these things. Respond to the grace of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He spoke of our attitude towards God. That because of what God has done, because of these great things that were all in the first part of the book, that we are to turn from the world away from it. We are to refuse to be conformed to that world. And rather, we are to seek to be transformed, beginning with our mind and through to our entire character. Not in order that we might be saved, but because we have been saved. Because we are right with God. And not only will the justified have a specific attitude toward God, Paul taught us, but they will also have a specifically Christian attitude towards other Christians. An attitude that is best defined over and over and over by one word, love. A genuine love, a sincere love, a humble love that counts others better than itself, that demonstrates itself through exercising the gifts that the Holy Spirit uh, gives to us, the abilities that are given for the good of others in the church. We are to love those within the church, and we are to love those outside of the church, we've learned. He instructed us in regard to how we even deal with the civil rulers under which we find ourselves. And our attitude towards other people in general, which not surprisingly is still the same. Love one another, Paul said. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, and love is the fulfilling of the law. And then most recently, Paul has written concerning love and liberty in the church. Topics of Christian liberty and how especially we are to exercise and willingly not exercise the freedoms that we have 
in, in order that we not divide the church over indifferent things. That we not divide over non-essential issues. That we are, he said, to make plenty of room for difference of opinion on indifferent things without condemning one another. We are to welcome one another without passing judgment. We're to build up one another without stumbling one another. Or even, he said, destroying one another. We are to bear with one another without seeking to just please ourselves. Rather, he said, that we are to follow the example of the Lord. That brings us to verse 7 of chapter 15. That verse with which we ended, as I mentioned last week, ends up being a transitional verse to Paul's new subject here in verses 8 through 13. And that subject is, as I've called it in the title of this morning's sermon, the welcoming work of Christ. See, Paul's attention is now going to turn to what Christ has done. We've seen what we're to do. In fact, uh, he'll, he'll mention that again as we, men- as we work through this transitioning verse. Because we want to begin by looking at the welcoming Christ. The welcoming Christ. The beginning of verse 7, again, is, is tied to that preceding section on the weak and the strong. And it's probably meant, as we saw, as a conclusion to it. But here it is more general. It is that we are, in verse 7, to welcome one another. If you remember back in verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul spoke to the strong that in regard to the weak, that they are to um, respond in that way. He says, the one who is weak in faith, he's speaking to the strong here, the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now here at the end of that section, Paul's command is very broad. Welcome one another to all the church, to the strong and the weak, to the Jew and the Gentile in the church. We are all to welcome one another. We are all to bear with one another. And we are to do it, Paul says, as Christ has welcomed you. How great it is to know that Christ has welcomed us. Now probably here... It is in the sense of of since Christ has welcomed you. Do this because Christ has welcomed you. On the same basis as Christ has welcomed you. For the purpose that Christ has welcomed you. And what is the purpose for which Christ has welcomed you? He says it there at the end of the verse. It's for the glory of God. That God would be glorified. Paul says welcome one another because Christ welcomed you also for the glory of God. Bear with one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now, it's interesting that that's given sort of as a a comparison. Since Christ welcomed you, you welcome one another. How inconsistent, he's saying, it is if if you don't welcome one another. But this is really, verse 7 is a, a slightly, I think, concealed, hidden version of one of Paul's greater to the lesser arguments. Because as he speaks there about we are to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, there's a certain incongruity there. There is a a lopsidedness to that comparison, isn't there? In fact, there's a massive difference there between what is involved in Christ welcoming you and you welcoming one another. Because Christ has welcomed us sinners, enemies. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. He died for the ungodly. He has welcomed us 
wicked people into his glorious holy kingdom through his incarnation and his crucifixion. That's what he did. We are simply told that we are to welcome others, sinners welcoming other sinners and not judging them. Christ had to leave heaven, be born a man, take our nature, die on a cross to welcome us. We simply have to have the humility, the obedience to welcome one another. To not all be hung up that everyone think the way that I think. And Christ has done that. And he has, through those acts, welcomed us all. All who are in the church. As many as will believe in him. Jew and Gentile. The totality of the church. He has brought salvation to those that he has thus welcomed. That we who were once apart from God, separated from Christ, without hope in the world, Paul says, that we have now been welcomed. Welcomed into God's family, into God's kingdom. What great news that is for us to hear. Now, I mentioned that the the topic of the inclusion of both Jew and Gentile, which Paul spent a lot of space on earlier in this letter, we mentioned it as we went through uh, all the way from chapter 1 and verse 16, where he said, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And in chapter 4, he spent uh, a good amount of time on the, the idea of Jews and Gentiles together. And of course, chapters 9 through 11, he mentioned that. I said that that would be back, and here it is. Because Paul, after saying in verse 7, welcome one another, he, he, as I say, leaves us sort of behind and now focuses on Christ. Paul focuses on what he did, on how he is welcomedest, on his welcoming work. And he shows us that the work of Christ has reference to both Jew and Gentile. And so in verses 8 through 12, Paul secondly speaks of the ministering Christ. We've seen the welcoming Christ, now we'll see the ministering Christ throughout the rest of our time. Here is how Christ welcomed the Jew and Gentile into the church. How he has brought the two together, which he writes about in Ephesians chapter 2 in a wonderful passage. But Paul says here in chapter 8, or chapter 15, verse 8, he says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Jesus, Paul says here, in order to to welcome us into the family, in order to welcome us for the glory of God, he became a servant, Paul says there, to the circumcised. Jesus was a servant. And and he was a minister, and as he came, as he mentioned, uh, we read it in the Gospels, he came specifically to minister as a servant to the circumcised, or to the circumcision as they were known. Jesus came, he said, to minister to the lost sheep of Israel. During his earthly ministry, that was his focus. Now that statement there, though, that he became a servant to the circumcised refers, first of all, to the Jews. 
Uh, but more broadly, it mentions and means that Jesus was a servant of the covenant that had been given to the Jews. The covenant of which circumcision was the sign and seal that we learned about earlier. A servant of the covenant. A servant of the promises of God. The promise of God to save for himself a people out of this mass of fallen and wicked humanity. It is through that covenant, that covenant of grace, that, that we are welcomed. That we are welcomed into the kingdom of God for the glory of God. The covenant that we are reminded of every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that it was ratified, that it was confirmed through the shedding of the blood of Jesus on the cross. The only blood that could ratify such a covenant, such a sweeping and saving covenant. The blood of the sacrificial animals of the Old Testament couldn't do it, as the author of Hebrews reminds us. Only the blood of the true and spotless, sinless Lamb of God to do it. And in offering himself up, Jesus confirmed that covenant. As he offered himself up for all who would believe in him, he showed, verse 8 says, God's truthfulness. He shows God's truthfulness in the promises that he gave. Fulfilling God's word that he swore when he gave the covenant. When he gave the covenant through the Jews. Fulfilling that word then. As Hebrews 6.17 says, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. The result of Christ coming and serving um, and being a a servant to, a minister of the circumcision. And Paul then gives us two reasons, not one, but two reasons for Christ doing what he did in fulfilling the terms of that covenant, in becoming a servant to the circumcised, or in regard to the covenant to which that circumcision pointed, the promises that were given to the Jews in the Old Testament. And that's the first thing that Paul gives us here. Paul says at the end of verse 8 that what Christ did, his service, his coming, was done in order, he says, look there, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Remember all of the promises that we read about in the Old Testament. The promises given particularly to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob regarding that covenant that God had made with them. Choosing that nation, that people, out of all the peoples of the world to bind himself to to unite himself through, to make a covenant with. And those men, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the beginnings of that. God made these promises. He said, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and bless those who bless you, he said in Genesis 12. I will do these things, God said, myself. And your reward is your relationship with me. Your reward is the fact that I will be your God and you will be my people. He said, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you forever. 
a people, a land, ultimately a land whose maker and builder is God, promised to the patriarchs, to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, given according to the promise, came, rejected by those people of the promise. He came and fulfilled that covenant. Again, through the shedding of his own blood and in doing so, confirmed the promises that God had made. Confirmed the promises that were given ultimately to the church, but through the Jewish nation. That's the first thing that Paul mentions here. But then look at verse 9. Notice Paul says in verse 8, he says, I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness. Then he says, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and, verse 9, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. See, Christ did what he did in order also that the Gentiles, those outside of Israel, those throughout the world, scattered throughout the world, that they might also come, that they might also be welcomed by Christ for the glory of God, that they might glorify God for his mercy, Paul says. And notice what he what Paul says there. The work of Christ in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, in regard to the Jews, he says, confirmed the promises given to the patriarchs, to the fathers of the Jewish people. But in regard to the Gentiles, particularly, the focus there is that the work of Christ points to and brings glory to God for the mercy that he showed to the Gentiles. Those outside of those covenant promises, he showed mercy to them. Both In one act of redemption, Christ fulfilled the Jewish, the patriarchal promises and showed mercy to the Gentiles, all together, who are now one. In fact, I've mentioned this passage a couple of times. Let me read it. It's in Ephesians 2. Listen to what Christ has done as a servant of this covenant, as a servant to the circumcised. And as one who would show mercy, show God's mercy to the Gentiles. He says in chapter 2 of Ephesians, he says, Therefore remember, Gentile Christians, remember that at one time you, Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You've been welcomed into the people of God by the blood of Christ. A couple verses later, he says that he came, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, that is Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are now fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, 
in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see, the promises of God, the mercy of God, brought together in the work of Christ. That is the welcoming work of our Lord. And back in Romans chapter 15, Paul then, as he so often does, proves his statement or emphasizes his statement by appealing to the Old Testament and quoting from the Old Testament. Here in verses 9 through 12, he gives us four quotes from the Old Testament to support this. And they're not just random quotes, but he, interestingly, first chooses quotes from all three of the divisions of the Old Testament. The, the law and the prophets and the writings. And we will also notice that there's a progression here. A progression in the statements contained in them. And they are particularly set to, to show the mercy of God shown by bringing in the Gentiles. It's, it shows us this process in short order. Affirming the place of the Gentiles in the plan of God and the purposes of God. And how God thus welcomed them. Just briefly on each of these, the first is, the first quote is from Psalm 1849. It's there at the end of verse 9. Paul says, As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. From Psalm 18, here's the psalmist, David. He, He speaks of his praising God among the Gentiles, he says, in their hearing. Sort of, detached from them. It's David doing the praising, but they can hear it. And he praises the Lord in Psalm 18 for protecting him from Saul as Saul was seeking his life. In verse 10, then, Paul quotes, secondly, uh, from Deuteronomy 32, from the Septuagint of Deuteronomy 32, the very end of that song of Moses. And verse 10 here in chapter 15 of Romans says, and again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. See, here now is a call from God through Moses to the Gentiles to rejoice along with his people. Rejoice in God now along with his people. Foreshadowing back then this, uh, the time when the two would be made one, when Christ, having reconciled both through the cross by his blood, would welcome all. The third quote is in verse 11. And notice there that he says, and again. He gives the first quote, and then he says, and again, and again, and again. He's sort of piling up these proofs. But he says in, in verse 11, again, quotes from the Psalms. This time, it's from the shortest psalm in the Bible. You know the longest psalm. Jim read from it today. Do you know the shortest psalm? It's psalm 117. Listen to verse 11. He quotes basically half the psalm here. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Again, this is a a quote that comes from the Septuagint. And it says, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. Again, an encouragement to the Gentiles to not just 
praise his name, but to rejoice. And not just to rejoice, but to extol him. And interestingly here, Israel isn't even mentioned at all, because now it's directed at the Gentiles. That they are to rejoice, the nations, they are called on to praise the Lord, to extol the Lord, to glorify the Lord, particularly Gentiles. You do this now. And then the fourth quote is in verse 12. This time he identifies the quote, Paul does, as Isaiah, and indeed it's from Isaiah 11.10. And Paul says that again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And in this prophecy, of course, He is speaking about Christ himself, the root of Jesse, a descendant of David and thus a descendant of Jesse, the promised Messiah who was to come. And it is, Isaiah says, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. The Messiah is the king of the church for them, for the Gentiles, as well as for the Jews. And what is really the point of Paul's use of this verse, as well as the climax of all of these quotations, comes next, where he says, In him will the Gentiles hope. In this one, this one who is to come, this one who will arise, the root, the shoot from the stump, from Jesse's withered tree would come by God's doing, one who would arise as the king of God's people, the hope of God's people, the hope of all of God's people, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles as well, the hope of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. Christ is the hope of God's people. He is the hope of mankind. Here again is another reason that we are to welcome one another, to bear with one another, the strong with the weak, the weak with the strong. Jew welcoming Gentile, Gentile welcoming Jew and bearing with them because God has through his Son and his Son has welcomed as many as will call on his name. Bringing them all together. And because Christ has welcomed all, he has died that all may come. He has fulfilled the promises to the Jews and the mercy of God to the Gentiles. That's the welcoming work, the ministering work of Christ. And Paul then concludes with a prayer and how appropriate this is. He continues the note of hope that he has mentioned so often in these last few chapters. And he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. It's interesting, this is the only place in the Bible where God is referred to as the God of hope. But it's a perfectly appropriate name, isn't it? He is the one who inspires hope. He is the one who brings hope. He is the one who gives hope because he is our hope. And in a world where there is often very little hope to be found, God is the God of hope. And that God, by the hope that he gives, Paul prays that he would fill you, his people, his welcomed people, that he would fill you with all joy and peace in believing. 
Because our greatest joy, beloved, is found in our greatest hope, which comes in Christ. The justification that Paul has been teaching, that we have by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, will thrill our hearts and correct our vision when our joy is very hard to find. And sometimes it is, even in this season of joy. The season when we point to joy, a season when lots of cards have the word joy on them, when a lot of people speak of joy, but really have no joy. We have joy. We have joy, people of God, because we have been welcomed by Christ. And we have peace. Peace in believing. Peace that comes through seeing that Christ has shown the truthfulness of God. Having been justified by grace, we have peace with God, Paul said in Romans 5.1. And he goes on there to say, and we rejoice, we have joy, in the glory of God. You remember back in chapter 14, in verse 17, you may be able to see it from where you're looking, where Paul told us, he was telling us what is important in that part of his discussion of the weak and the strong. What the kingdom of God is really all about, he said. What was it? Well, he said it's not tied up in what you eat or what you drink. But he said that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And now he prays for that. He prays that the God of hope will fill you with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So that, he says, as he concludes, through the ever-present, ever-effective work of the Holy Spirit, he, he proves that in your life that you may have, not just have, he doesn't say just have, not just arrive at hope, not just have hope, But look at what he says, that he prays that through these things that you may abound in hope. That the confidence that you have in God and in which you rest, Christian, that you may have it in abundance. That it may affect every aspect of your life. That it may fill up within you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over And this is always needful. But in an increasingly hopeless world, it is a treasure beyond worth, Christian. That we would be filled with joy that comes from Christ, that comes from what he has done. That we would have the peace that comes with believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, beloved, you may abound in hope. And that is not only a treasure beyond worth, but it is a treasure worth sharing. You know, there's so many, especially noticeable in this time of the year, people that lack hope or misplace hope. They place their hope in man, in political parties, political platforms, in human philosophies. None of that gives real hope. The hope that we can have, the hope that we can share is the true hope that is in Christ and only in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we...
Thank you for your work. We thank you for welcoming us. And our God, we thank you that you have welcomed us through your Son. That you have welcomed us into the church, into the kingdom, into that place of blessedness in which we stand through Christ. We pray that you would help us to rejoice in the hope that we have, that confident expectation, Lord, that we, we have seen that you fulfill your promises once again. We've seen that you show mercy once again. And we've been reminded that you show it to us. Regardless of back, background, regardless of anything, Lord, except that we trust in you. We thank you, Lord, for welcoming sinful, wicked people. Help us to welcome one another, to be kind to one another, to love one another, especially as we think of what Christ has done for us. And we ask this in his name. Amen.